picture this. An air hostess is hurrying through Heathrow. It's late 1963. She's due to catch up with her crew on the BOAC transatlantic crossing to New York. In her handbag, she's got the usual things. Keys, lipstick, and one other item, small enough to slip into the side pocket of her carry-on. Something that will help trigger an extraordinary chain of events involving more than 70 million Americans a few weeks later, just when they needed a little magic in their lives. Something was already in the air long before our air hostess took to the skies above London that day. Like the music that sailed from America to Europe in the 50s and first slipped into the hearts and minds of teenagers up and down Ireland and the UK. Especially in the city of Liverpool. You already know their story. This is the Beatles! This is the story of when they brought that music home to America in the winter of 1963 with the help of our unsuspecting air hostess. Beatlemania officially broke out in October 1963 in Britain. There were crowds of teenagers in the streets and they were police brought out to control them and the newspapers made a tremendous to-do about that. That's Jonathan Gould, a musician who's written a new history of the Beatles called Can't Buy Me Love. Slap bang in the middle of that history is the jewel of a story of how the Beatles first made it in America. The Beatles were on their way up the British music charts, working frantically in the studio and playing dates across the UK. Brian Epstein, their manager, insisted that they take a vacation. And George had a sister who was living in St. Louis. He came over and visited here and went into record stores in America and asked if they happened to have a record by the Beatles. And nobody would heard of it. Nobody knew anything about it. So the band knew it was right to go to America. Central to this was the character of Brian Epstein. He brought a, an extraordinary style to what he was doing because he knew very little about the record business. The people that decide about these things at Decker said no. He had all the little dodges of upper-class British speech. Well, you could imagine I was more worried about what I was going to say to the boys having built up their hopes. He would say things like, not to bore you, but I really think that there's a chance that they're going to be bigger than Elvis Presley. But having a manager with a strange line of chat and a bunch of rock and roll mock tops wasn't going to be enough to get to the top of the charts in America. This story needed extra flavouring in the recipe for success. Passing through Heathrow Airport on the way back from the show in Sweden in November, the Beatles are again greeted by a horde of screaming fans. One of the bemused passengers looking on at this drama that day was an American, a TV presenter, Ed Sullivan. And now, oh boy, with Buddy Holland and his crickets. In the 60s, Sullivan's Weekly Show was a huge television phenomenon. Let's have a fine welcome for a very fine talent. Sunday night was Sullivan night for millions of American households, and a spot on the program was a catapult ride to fame. Ed Sullivan knew a phenomenon when he saw one, so he, in some way or another, got in contact with Epstein, Brian Epstein, and he said, look, if you're ever in New York, you know, look me up and we'll talk about having them on the show. On the basis of that contact, Epstein planned a trip to New York. Epstein had two reasons for his trip to New York in the second week of November. The first was to speak to his new friend. 
the negotiations with Ed Sullivan were kind of amusing because when they met with Epstein, first of all, he was the last thing they expected. I mean, here's this this well-spoken, well-dressed. He was Epstein was a, a bit of an understated dandy in his way. The other reason for Brian Epstein coming to Manhattan was to meet with the American arm of the Beatles record label, Capitol Records. But he's not actually meeting with the top brass of Capitol Records. He's meeting with a guy named Brown Meggs, who's in charge of the East Coast office of the New York office of Capitol Records. And the East Coast office of Capitol was mainly involved in their very lucrative business in Broadway show tunes. So this was not by any means a, a major figure in Capitol's popular music division. Brown Meggs listened very politely to Epstein's. And he took the press clippings that Brian gave him and said, well, thank you very much, and I'll pass these on to the executives in Hollywood. And that, sadly for the Beatles, was the end of that. Capital had no interest in a band from England. We already have our own Beatles. They're out on the West Coast. They're called the Beach Boys. So by November, the Beatles had a big spot on the Ed Sullivan show, but no records in the shops. Now, even a teenager with just a passing interest in pop could tell you that's a pretty useless business plan. Epstein returned to England, wondering what on earth could happen to shake this story up. NBC Newsroom in New York. He didn't have long to wait. President Kennedy and Governor John Connolly of Texas have been cut down by assassins' bullets in downtown Dallas. Two weeks after Brian went back to England, President Kennedy was assassinated. And... I don't think it's too much to say that the entire American world changed in that moment. The whole outlook of America as a country was altered by this. Anybody who lived through the event, I was a very young person at that time, but I, anybody who lived through that event understands that the, the, the effect of it has, has never really been fully taken into account. But not all of America reacted in the same way to the assassination. Some, like the war generations, had the experience to get over it. Other, younger Americans really took it to heart. And there were a number of studies that were done that showed that months after the event, American teenagers seemed to be still existing in kind of the early stages of grief, which are shock and disbelief and things like this. And I was very taken by reading about that because essentially what happens is this. Kennedy's assassinated on November 22, 1963. About a week later, a listener calls up a disc jockey in Washington, D.C., and request a Beatle record, and this guy, for, for one reason or another, manages to get a copy from a, a British Airlines stewardess. He, he has a copy of, 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 this is I Want to Hold Your Hand, we're talking about, it's imported uh, by a stewardess. He gets it, he plays it on the air. And it's one of these moments that they sort of, you know, that they like to dramatize in Hollywood movies. There's this incredible response to it. People are calling the station saying, what is that? What is that? Can you play that again? This sort of thing. The Detroit station gets a copy of this record from the Washington station and starts playing it. W-X-Y-Z, you get more. Because the response was so great to it, they would began by playing it every couple of hours, and then they began by playing it every hour. They played it the way they would play a weather report. The phenomenon of the Beatles took hold. Seemingly unrelated pieces of a jigsaw started to fall into place. From our newsroom in Washington, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Search goes on in San Francisco for the man known as the Zodiac Killer. 
Take, for example, a CBS News report on Beatlemania in the UK. Yeah, 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 those are the Beatles, those are, and this is Beatleland, formerly known as Britain, where an epidemic called Beatlemania... It had been dropped, and it stayed dropped, until the anchorman's daughter intervened. Walter Cronkite, who was the anchorman on the CBS Evening News, indicated that his daughter had urged him to listen to the Beatles. Uh, she was already in, enthralled to Beatlemania. And besides being merely the latest objects of adolescent adulation and culturally the modern manifestation of compulsive tribal singing and dancing, the Beatles are said by sociologists to have a deeper meaning. Some say the Beatles represent authentic British youth, or British youth as it would like to be. Self-confident, natural, direct, decent, vital, throbbing. The Beatles themselves seem to have no illusions. They symbolize the 20th century non-hero as they make non-music, wear non-haircuts, give non-mercy. And meanwhile, yeah, 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 the fan mail keeps rolling in and so does the money. This is Alexander Kendrick in Beatleland. And still the story grew. More and more airplay, more excitement on a wavelength of youth and anticipation. The usually stuffy New York Times magazine bowed before the Beatles with a feature about the new craze that was sweeping the pop world. And then the same week, Variety puts out a story on its front page saying that the Beatles' new single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, which has just been released in Britain, sold a million copies. And this is something that had only happened once before with Elvis Presley. So remember Capitol Records? They were the guys who refused to put the Beatles singles out in the first place. By this stage, they had no choice. They went into production meltdown over Christmas to make I Want to Hold Your Hand available by the time they touched down in the new JFK airport just over a month later. Incredibly, the song was number one And here's the magic. They wowed more than just the fans. We're all used to the idea that celebrities arrive someplace and are interviewed. In those days, it, that was not necessarily the case. The mainstream media did not pay the kind of attention to entertainment figures in those days that it routinely pays to them now. So from these reporters' point of view, they're sent out to the airport to interview this pop group from Liverpool who look, by the standards of most adult men and women in America, somewhat ridiculous. You have to remember that the Beatles' hairstyle, Americans tended to associate it with one of the Three Stooges. The Beatles look utterly eccentric. So the reporters came out there filled with a set of pretty cynical questions. No, we need money first. <laughs> and everybody's a little taken aback by this. You're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to say either, oh, we would, you know, we're so happy to be here or something like that. And then they start asking them questions. I question. Do you want to get a haircut at all? No. No, 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 no thanks. I had one yesterday. <laughs> and what they did in this whole encounter was to call attention to just how ridiculous this whole thing was. Pleases them, I think. Well, they must do because they're buying it. Why does it excite you so much? We don't know, really. <laughs> <laughs> we can get another group and be managers. 
So by the time the Beatles turned up at the Ed Sullivan Show, it wasn't just an appearance. It was more like a coronation. You're going to twice be entertained by them, right now and again in the second half of our show. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Close your eyes and I'll kiss you. 70 million people tuned in to see them on the Ed Sullivan Show, which was the largest American television audience in, for a commercial program in history. The only larger audience that had ever watched television in America was the audience that watched during the three days of uninterrupted coverage of the Kennedy assassination. Jonathan Gould's book is called Can't Buy Me Love, The Beatles, Britain and America. What if these events had not come together at the same time? If some of these pieces had not fallen into place, the Beatles might have been an enormous phenomenon in Britain and nowhere else. I'd like to think that their music was so powerful that it was an irresistible force, but I, I, I'm, I'm really not sure about that. It would be interesting to really sit down and try to write the story of how it couldn't have happened. I, I'm sure it could be done. You've been listening to The Curious Ear. I'm Paul Russell.